Well, hi, everybody. Great to see you here. Thank you very much. Um, as Ron said, we're in a series on the Beatitudes. You find that in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, last week, John set the scene. Um, so if you need to catch up, I, I just want to encourage you, just download that. Because um, it was extremely well done. It produced a great backdrop, a whole sense of, a whole sense of context for the Beatitudes. And it means we don't have to keep doing that again and again. So uh, it was just excellent last week. So please do that for yourselves. It will help you understand where Jesus is coming from in terms of the Beatitudes. So we're going to read together from verses 3 to 10. We're going to read from verses 3 to 10. And we're going to stand. And we're going to read that together. So if you are able, could you stand? And um, it's good to do this. Matthew 5, verse 3. So look, as, as I start, join in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's take a seat, shall we please? That's great. Thank you very much. We're looking at verses 3 and 4 today um, because they hinge so much together. And that is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we'll move from one to the other partway through. I don't know if you noticed, but this passage starts and finishes with the phrase... Uh, the kingdom of heaven. It's, uh, it's top and tail, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven. It just constantly. Uh, John refers to it as the kingdom of God. Other, It's just different. It means the same. Um, it's the kingdom of heaven. In, in, in fact, in that well-known conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus says to him, you know, he says, you must be born again. Do you got that one? You remember that one? You must be born again. Well, what for? What's the point? You must be born again. Be born again is not the end game. Now, the point of being born again is that you would be, um, you come into the kingdom of God. See, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless... He is born again. And then he also says no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The point is the kingdom of God. So perhaps just a little helpful way might be of explaining that was that if a new prime minister came into power or a president or whatever came into power, then his administration is often expressed in policies, new policies, new priorities, new processes. And if that person is wise 
It will be for the benefit of the people. It will be for the, invol- you know, the improvement of their lives. So Jesus comes. <laughs> well, he's the ultimate ruler. He'd be the ultimate king. He is the king of kings. And his supernatural power is expressed through the kingdom of God. That's the, the rule and the reign of God. It's not a geographical kingdom. It's the rule. God breaking in. God changing things. The wonderful power of God breaking into people's lives. He does it in people's lives. He transforms their lives. If this is not a benefit... This is not a benefit or two or an improvement. This is a radical transformation. What it is to be born again into the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God begins to break through into our lives. So it's, and it's every dimension, my friends. So this is the gateway. Poor in spirit. Blessed. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. It's the characteristic of every Christian. So you're not going to go. You are not going to come in to the things of God without this. You know, the poor in spirit. And this is what a Christian is like. It has this element to him, this characteristic of the poor in spirit. You'll find that these characteristics here in the Beatitudes, like poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, etc. They are not wise sayings about different types of people. Please get that. These are characteristics of one group of people. God's people. Christians. This is what it is to be a Christian. So John last week, if you were here, you remember he asked anybody if uh, they had tried and succeeded in living out the Sermon of the Mount. And I noticed that nobody stood up. Absolutely nobody stood up. Quite wise, in my opinion. Um, Before I was a Christian, I actually was quite intrigued with Matthew 5 to 7. Lots of people are, you know. They say these are the greatest teachings on earth. Jesus' teachings. Matthew 5 to 7. You never find it better, better illustrated in Matthew than in Matthew 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount. And um, I, I, I was intrigued by this. And, and I read this and I used to think, my goodness me, what would this world be like if people lived like this? What a world to live in if people lived like this. So I'm in a, uh, a bit odd Yes, I can see you nodding your heads. I'm feel odd at times, and I thought, you know, one day I just thought, do you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this stuff. I was a teaching Birkenhead. I don't know, probably a Monday morning. It's as good a morning as any. And I, I thought, I'm going to do this. King, I'm going to do this Sermon on the Mount stuff. I walked into school, and um, partway through the morning, I remember thinking, whew, this is hard. Now, you may think, well, surrounded by a whole load of children, you're right, Neil. That is hard. That is hard. And uh, teachers, I tell you what, respect. That's all I can say. Anyway, that's halfway through the morning. By lunchtime, I'd been in the company of teachers as well as children. And uh, I didn't think it was difficult at all. I thought it's just impossible. Absolutely impossible. 
you know, to forgive. Just to forgive. You know, not to hold anything against anyone. Forgiveness. And then, the, then this whole aspect of what, what was it? That loving your enemies. Oh my goodness me. It's so difficult. And on top of that, I had this thing about not letting people know your good deeds. Why wouldn't you do that? Tell everybody, you know. You also thought, what an arrogant so-and-so. And it just, I found it impossible. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I found it wasn't just others. It was inside me. I really didn't want to do it. So I may have started off the morning thinking, let's do this stuff. You think this is probably weird, but I did try that. I found I didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it. And it was, a, it was quite a salutary lesson to me. Poor in spirit. Don't think this is natural. It's not natural tendencies, this. This is supernatural. It has to be a God thing. It's the only way. It's the only way into this kingdom. You can't come any other way. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. It's not about trying. It's about trusting in what Christ has done. It's not about rules. If you do the rules game, it'll undo you. Why? Because it's about relationship. Always comes first. People often said about Christianity that, um, I don't know if you've heard them say it, but, you know, Christianity is just a, it's just a crutch for weak people. Anybody said that to you? Just raise your hand. If anybody has said, do you know, Christian, oh, well, it's just a crutch for weak people. Yeah, that's quite a few of you here. Um, you know, people who can't make it on their own need some help. John Piper had this, um, exactly this conversation. And one of a, a student at a university said to this, said to him, well, it's just a crutch for weak people. So his response was this. Why is the is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't normally look at a crutch and say, huh, that's bad. In general, in general, people look at crutches, they don't think it's bad. They don't think they're bad. I mean, it's just a crutch. Why does a crutch become a bad thing? When it's Christianity. I think the answer that most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But we don't like to think of ourselves like that. And so it is offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch. Jesus said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who ever get and ever, ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people. By that I mean people who are spiritually, spiritually, morally crippled. And broken. They're the only people where that will happen. This is totally at odds with our culture. Our culture is a self confident, self reliant, 
self-help culture. It's utterly independent. doesn't like asking for help. It runs on those principles. Our culture says, has a language. It says believe in yourself. Actualize your potential. You can do anything. You can be anything. Through hard work and determination, you can, guess what? Live the dream. That's what our culture does. The self-help industry, by the way, is a multi-billion pound industry. They reckon that 80% of self-help consumers are repeat buyers. Have a think. It strongly suggests that it may not actually be working. 80% are repeat buyers. Perhaps self-help isn't as easy as it suggests. I just got married in 1976. Uh, we moved from Red Hill. I moved from Birkenhead to Red Hill. Um, I had a new job. Uh, <laughs> new wife. I didn't have an old one. I had a new one. And, uh, and, and I was just under pressure. But I was under pressure. I was under pressure inside. Because God was on my case. God was on my case. And I felt this incredible pressure. And I didn't. I really didn't want to. I didn't want to admit my need of him. The point was this. I was out of my league in the job that I was in. I was just out of my league. And I, I wanted to clean up my own act. I, I wanted to stop this and start that. I wanted to come to God on my own terms. I wanted to do it, as Frank Sinatra would say, my way. Three weeks into all of this, and the pressure is immense. God is on my case. I, I know he is real. I know he exists. I, I, don't, I don't have to, uh, you know, I don't need a, a sort of a stunning revelation of this. I know it. And I, yeah, and yeah, I don't want to respond to him. Three weeks into this job, I come home. It's about 10 o'clock at night. I sit at the table. I put my head on the table. And I just cried. I just wept. I just broke. Absolutely broke. And, and it, I just knew God was on my case. And I, I, I waved the white flag of surrender and I said, God, Jesus, come in. Please change my life. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, my friends. It, it's the only gateway. It's the starting point. It's nothing to do. Being a Christian has nothing to do with your nationality or your, your family or even your temperament. It's nothing to do with that at all. It's a God thing and you can only come in poor in spirit. It's the realization and the awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And scripture is littered with moments like this. Take one, for instance. Jesus is taking a nap in the back of a boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this furious storm brews up. And, uh, and they say they can be incredibly quick and incredibly damaging. And the fishermen are in the boat and they are absolutely concerned. And the water's coming over the bow of the boat and they say to Jesus, wake up. Don't you care if we drown? Wake up. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a plane 
and because uh, people like this are infuriating. You're in a plane, and, um, and suddenly the plane is moving all over the place. I mean, it suddenly goes up, down, the lights come on, fasten your seat belts, and there's people, there's people beginning to shout, and, uh, and you can see this whole set of anxiety in the plane, and, and all this movement, the person sitting next to you is asleep. And you want to shake him and say, wake up here! Have you got the common sense to be scared at a moment like this? Jesus is having a nap in the boat. Anyway, he gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves. And he says, why are you so afraid? Interesting question. There's no celebration. There's no high fives in the boat. Mark says this. They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were more terrified after the storm than they were before it. Who is this person? Isaiah meets him. You read it in Isaiah 6. And he encounters the presence of God. And in the presence of God, he falls apart. Absolutely falls apart. There's such a, such a holiness, such a wonder about the presence of God. Isaiah, Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. So I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm ruined. Isaiah was the most righteous man in all of Israel, but in the presence of God, my goodness me, poor in spirit, you bet. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a sense of, it's an evident awareness of our spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before a holy God. Poor in spirit is a sense of personal unworthiness and powerlessness to help yourself. Peter is exactly the same. Jesus tells, you know, Jesus tells these fishermen where to fish. They've been out all night, and he says, Well, just put your boats out there and put your nets over the side there. I don't know how they cope with that. You know, a carpenter telling fishermen where to fish after they've been out all night. But Peter's response is really interesting. Because the boat's about to capsize. It's got so much fish. And his response is to come to Jesus. And he gets in front of him. And he falls on his knees. He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. See, the normal state of the human heart, my friends, is to try and build its identity around something else other than God. It's to achieve our own self-worth, our own sense of of purpose, our own self-importance, our meaning for life. The human heart searches and longs and aches because it's empty. And nothing you throw in there, nothing you throw in there, anything you, anything you throw in there, all it will do is rattle. Because there's a vast emptiness inside every person that only God can meet. That's it. Only God can meet that person. And if you stick that emptiness on somebody else, you are asking for big trouble from them because they can't do it. 
And if you're filling yourself with self-importance with your family, I'll tell you what, it'll undo you. Because you can't do it. Only God can fill that place. If it's about your job and your brilliance and your IQ and how clever you are, I tell you, a day will come and that will, you will be undone. It will never fill this hole. It's too small. Only God can pick up that hole for you. Happy, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy. It's the wording. It means blessed. Not miserable, not pious, falsely pious, not trying to be ever so, ever so humble. Oh, I'm ever so humble. It's not trying to be like that. To be poor in spirit is not to draw attention to yourself. It's to have your eyes on him and his sufficiency, his mercy, his kindness. So when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he doesn't mean everybody. It's for people who feel this. I use that word. I use that word properly. For people who feel this, who experience what it is to be poor in spirit in front of him. And, And therefore... You, you move from there to the second, which is, therefore, blessed are those who mourn. Who don't try and hide their cloak, help themselves behind a cloak of self-sufficiency. Who are honest about themselves, grieved at what they do, and driven to the grace of God. That is, being mourn- that is mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Don't do this, there's no comfort, my friends. This is a logical step. Following on from being poor in spirit. It's simply an awareness, a realistic awareness of your sinfulness. In Jeremiah chapter 6, I love this phrase. God says to the spiritual leaders of Israel, he said, they dress, they dress the wounds of my people as if they were not serious. That is a great line. Dress the wounds of my people as if they were not serious. You know, you've got to move from poor in spirit. You realize your emptiness. There's a man on a cross who emptied himself. That's how you're filled. It's how we can be filled with the Spirit. There's a man across who's emptied himself. There's a God who came. Jesus emptied himself. Became a man. That we... That we might not be in this place of emptiness, but in a place of fullness. It's not just enough to know something's wrong. It's not just enough to know symptoms, my friends. You need to identify the disease, to admit the sin. You need to be specific. The philosophy of this world is this. And I don't think the church is immune. Don't think we're in some sort of holy bubble where we're not affected by what is going on outside, that is untrue. We're not immune. And and the philosophy is this, let's just move on. Okay, we'll just move on. Shrug that off. Sweep it under the carpet. It's right. It's not important. Let's move on. Let's, Let's deal with things that are positive. Let's not deal with the negative. Let's deal with the positive things. Let's, let's talk about what's ahead. I tell you what, there's no true comfort without true mourning. To mourn is to see yourself as you are. Those who really know the life of the Spirit of God, they practice something called self-examination. They say a good thing to do is this. 
at the end of the day, pause. Take another look at your life. What have I done? What have I said? How have I behaved? And here's a really important question, this one. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why do I behave like that? Why when Friday comes and it's the end of the week, why why is alcohol my comforter? Why? Why why do I do that? You have to ask yourself these questions, you know. Why why won't I talk to that person? Why won't I do that? These are why why do I get so angry? Why do I get so angry? Do you just push that under the carpet, shrug it off, move on? If that's the case, and you're 20, and you get so angry, you know you could be 50 and doing exactly the same thing, and I haven't got a clue how many people you would have damaged in the process. Why do I do that? Why do I push other people down in order to make myself look good? Why do I do that? You need a place of self-examination. See... This is why we mourn. But if we don't do that, we'll never know the comfort of the Father. It's so critical, this. Philip Yancey goes to this church, inverted commas, and he describes his visit to his church. He, he, he says he went to this ramshackle house at 12 o'clock at midnight. There had been six previous meetings prior to this. Cigarette smoke hung in the air. But it didn't take long before he understood why this friend thought this could be compared to the early church. There was a well-known politician there. There were several prominent millionaires mixing easily with unemployed dropouts and kids with needle marks. And then the introduction started. Hi. Hi. I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And instantly, with great warmth, everybody responded, Hi, Tom. It's like a textbook, small group. Compassionate listening, warm responses, each giving their personal progress report. And Yancey said this, we laughed a lot. And we cried a lot. And he says, there was no reason, there was no reason not to be honest. We were all in the same boat. Alcoholics Anonymous is is the most well-known and regarded by many as the most successful support group for addicts. And the first principle was to know that they were powerless to overcome their problem and to admit it. You have to get to that place. The first and second Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning in terms of coming to be comforted, you have to know that your problems are beyond you. 
when you know the state that you're in and that you're utterly powerless to do anything about it, here's the thing. You need a savior. That's it. You just need a savior. Shane Taylor was considered to be the most dangerous man in the prison system. He, had, uh, he was in for attempted murder. He had his sentence increased whilst he was in prison for assaulting prison officers. He led major riots in the prison. He was somebody that eventually the safest place to put him was in a, just a self-contained unit in isolation. I mean, everybody was in fear and dread of this man. And one day, he goes on an alpha course in prison. And the uh, alpha course, if you've not heard about the alpha course, the alpha course is a course that was introduced by Nicky Gumbel from HTB. And it's, um, it's exploring the meaning of life from a Christian perspective. Shane Taylor goes on the alpha course because he wants biscuits and cake. That's why he goes. And along the journey of the Alpha Course, he gets to a day and he prays. And he says this, Jesus Christ, I know you died on a cross for me. Please, I don't like who I am. Please forgive me. Please. And there's this bubble that begins to rise in Shane Taylor. And then he starts to cry. He can't remember the last time he cried. He cried nonstop, five minutes, completely bawled his eyes out. And he said he could feel this weight lift off him. And he felt so light. And he asked the chaplain, he said, what is that? And the chaplain said, that's the Holy Spirit. And he rushed over to these prison warders and he said, it's real. It's real. It's real. So he comes in poor in spirit. He mourns for the person he is. And God meets him. Transforms his life utterly transforms his life. This man goes into prison again, not because he's committed problems, but to take alpha courses and to speak to prisoners and see them set free in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. You've got to, you know, it takes, it, it takes, it, there's no sorrow. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no joy without sorrow. No sorrow, no joy. That's it. Can't have it. He's an utterly changed man. He has the sorrow and then the joy comes. So different. I tell you what this. I I can be vulnerable and be myself before God because he sees all of me. It's funny, isn't it? Why We're like children who hide behind our hands as if you can't see me. Why do we do that? And God sees it all. And loves us. 
God sees it all and loves us. Whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. That's absolutely amen. You know, you, you can step out on the tightrope, my friends. And you can, you can bring the real me, warts and all, to the Lord. And know you have a safety net. Because Jesus has been there and paid the price for your sin. Being raised to life so that you might have a new life. Be born again into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. I want to leave you with this picture because uh, it's just meant so much to me over the last few months, really. And it's the picture of the prodigal son. It's by Rembrandt. And you'll see it in a moment, I trust. There it is. Okay, so the reason I, I like this, I like this picture. I hope you can see it well enough. But the prodigal son is the story of the, the son who goes off and spends everything his father has given him, spends it all, wild parties, wild things, ends up with pigs, and, uh, and, and eating the things that pigs eat. That was it. That's his life. It is the most wretched place. It's painted as the most wretched place. And this is him coming back. And, and when he comes back, he says, he says to his father, make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, be my master. Now, father will have nothing like it. Your father will have nothing of that whatsoever. And this is him with the father. And the reason I like this is because the son has got his face on his father's chest. And he's brought all his wretchedness and all his hopelessness and all the pain that comes with that. He brings it all and he plonks it on his father's chest. And I love the father's arms, you know. They're just around him, loving his son. Hallelujah. The reason we can be like this vulnerable, say it as it is, be specific, we can mourn and bring our stuff to him, is that we might know the comfort of the Father. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You are never going to shock him. You're never going to shock him. He will always be for you. Psalm 136 has 26 verses, and they have a line on each, and they have a, they have a, what, I, what is called, they just sort of have a response. And the response is this, his love endures forever. I think it's amazing. And they do it for 26 verses, and each time the people go, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. You know, it would be a good thing to do here, wouldn't it? His love endures forever. Can you imagine what that does for you. His love endures forever. Look, wherever you are today, I'm telling you this, his love endures forever. Wherever you've been, his love endures forever. And for you, you know, this might be your moment. This might be the moment that you say, actually, I need to do this. I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. I need to do this. His love endures forever. You can bring yourself to the Father and he will receive you. He will do that.